Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. This episode is brought to you by ZocDoc. Making healthcare easy with the free ZocDoc app, the great way to find a doctor and instantly book an appointment. Go to ZocDoc.com slash PMP. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast coming to you free from America, though I would prefer you join our Patreon and pay the small fee. Today we're discussing West Side Story, the musical originally staged in 1957 in light of the new film version directed by Steven Spielberg and the recent passing of the lyricist Steven Sondheim. I'm Mark Linton-Meyer, and I too feel pretty witty and wise, or at least two out of the three. Let's go around to our panel. Bill, humans, you have been on my products before, several Partial Examine Life audio plays and things. Can you say briefly what your connection to this, why we got you on for this topic? Hi, I'm Bill Humans. I'm somewhere between my first cigarette and my last dying day in New York City. And yeah, I'm in the musical theater myself. I've been in a show of Stephen Sondheim's, uh, an original production, worked with Sondheim himself at the public theater. The show was called Road Show. Ron saw it. And I've met him a few other times and auditioned for him once for another show, which I didn't get. My great uncle, Vincent Humans, was also a musical theater composer. He wrote Tea for Two and the show No, No, Nanette and a number of other songs that you know pretty well, but don't know who wrote them. That's why I'm here. All right. And you connected me with Erica Spires, my longtime co-host on this show, who was supposed to be here and decided she was overcommitted at the last minute. So Nicole... Hametti, whom we had your co-host from Remakes, Reboots, and Revivals on a year ago and have been wanting to get you on. So this is a great opportunity. Tell a little about yourself. Yes, I'm so glad to be here. Finally, as he said, I'm Nicole Pometti, co-host of the podcast Remakes, Reboots, Revivals with Rolando Nieves. I'm also a writer, a video editor, and an overall Sondheim lover. And I pity any girl who isn't me tonight. I also want to add that in honor of today's call, I'm wearing my Sondheim on Sondheim shirt. The original show from about 10 years ago that was on Broadway that I was so lucky to see. But then they turned into the documentary that you can watch on HBO. So if you're a Sondheim, interested in Sondheim, Sondheim lover, and you haven't seen it, I would definitely uh, recommend that. It's a great documentary. Actually, the violinist in my band here in Madison was in that show. And I saw it in a grade school gymnasium with him in it with an audience of maybe 40 people. It was a very intimate experience. And lastly, so you guys are both vastly more qualified than I am on this topic, but I think Ron may take the cake. Introduce yourself, Ron. Yes, I'm Ron Fassler. I'm coming from New York City. I've never had the love every child ought to get. And I am a true Sondheim fanatic. As a young boy, beginning at the age of 12, I started attending the Broadway theater on my own when ticket prices were as low as $2 to sit in the last row. I saw the original company. Follies, Night Music, Pacific Overtures, Sweeney Todd, and all the other great musicals of the 70s and beyond. I've written a book about those experiences called Up in the Cheap Seats. And I'm also a prolific blogger at my blog, which is Theater Yesterday and Today. So I comment on shows of the past and the present and even the future. 
And I'm thrilled to be here because West Side Story is, of course, a great favorite. It premiered on Broadway in 57, the year I was born. So that's a production I did not see. But it's a delight. I'm very happy to be here with you guys. I'd love to ask, I'm just, I'm geeking out completely, but you saw the original company. Did you see Dean Jones as Bobby or did you see Larry Kurt? I saw it the week it opened. So I was fortunate enough to see Dean Jones before he left the show. For those people listening who aren't aware, the original star of company, Dean Jones, gave an exceptional performance, but he was quite tortured during the out-of-town engagement in Boston, the preview period in New York, and he begged to be let out of the show. He just found it was just taking too much out of them. We forget that actors are human beings, and sometimes when they dig deep, there's real pain. Harold Prince, the director and producer, said to Jones, please open the show, and then I will gracefully let you out. And the news came through about three weeks into the run that Dean Jones was ill and had hepatitis. I'll never forget that. That's what they used, which that's really quite the lie. Um, (laughs) And Larry Kurt, who was his understudy and the original star of West Side Story went on in his place. I'm not going to moderate this discussion, but I will pretend that I am the audience as a musical theater naive. And if you guys get too geeky and too long-winded in the side (laughs) comments, I will try to get us back on track. Yeah, we'll keep getting back to West Side Story. I should say, so this was supposed to be, like, Bill was somebody we had in mind for this podcast right when it started and kept what's going to be the perfect topic. Oh, we should do Sondheim. Oh, well, there's going to be a Sondheim thing eventually coming out. And here it is. However, I didn't realize at that time, ignorant of Sondheim as I am, this was not actually a Sondheim thing, that he only wrote the lyrics. This is not his trademark acquired taste, musical chord choices, musical style. We could go a little into that, but there will be a future discussion on this podcast at some point that will take on Sondheim's oeuvre. But this seemed a nice appetizer for it, thing that was a giant pop culture phenomenon in itself. And why is it coming back now? What does it mean that Spielberg and company did it? What are the updates that they made for political reasons? I guess some of the articles that I was looking at, maybe this is a topic to start with, just to, most people are talking about the political stuff, right? The fact that it was updated to make it more authentically Puerto Rican, that there were no Puerto Ricans involved really in the original version. And now we have the injection, you know, a lot of untranslated Spanish. It doesn't matter if you don't know Spanish, you can follow it well enough. But even that is not necessarily, I don't know, some of the articles I was looking at were saying it didn't correct enough. The just inherent weird tribalist take on minorities and poor people in general in New York. Anybody want to start with that? Was Rita Moreno Puerto Rican? Yes, but she wore brown face in the original to make her darker. She darkened her face. And all the other Puerto Rican characters were white people with brown face. So like, and doing exaggerated accents. And even Moreno had to do an exaggerated accent. So that's pretty crazy. And this is 1961 was the movie version, the original movie version. Well, one of the things that's come out because they've been talking about it in terms of the politicalization of race and ethnicity, do not forget that everyone involved in West Side Story was a Jewish homosexual. I think it's beside the point, but it's something that people are talking about because it gives them something to talk about. I got very upset when somebody started getting down on Rachel Zegler, who plays Maria, because she's not authentically Puerto Rican. She's completely Latino, but it's really splitting hairs. Now, unfortunately, I mean, do we have anybody here representing Puerto Ricans or no? No, we don't. So I guess it might offend, but Bill is an actor. I'm an actor. The best person should get the part, not to be too, I don't know, where do we go from here? I mean, am I opening a big can of worms here? You know? (laughs) Well, it's interesting because I'm Italian and I'm Cuban. 
And I grew up loving West Side Story. And I didn't know that Natalie Wood wasn't authentically of some sort of Latino background. So it was a complete shock to me when I got older. And I realized that there was all this outrage about her because I actually, and I still stand by this to this day that I thought that she played a great Maria. And I do think that one of the things about this new film is that it is at least the way that it's being received is overly politicized. And it's people are focusing way too much on, say, the casting instead of the story, which is, you know, to me, just the best and the music, which is what makes West Side Story great. If it's 1961, if it's 2021, it's always going to be great. And this subject did rear its head when In the Heights came out this summer and when Manuel Miranda had to actually apologize because he didn't include any black Puerto Ricans in his cast. It slipped by them. They were looking for the best actors for the part. They certainly wanted people to be authentically Latino. And they got that. And then suddenly they, you know, were hit in the face like a big wet fish. Hey, where are the black Latinos who really make up such a huge part of the population of of Washington Heights? And who has done more for the Puerto Rican community than Lin-Manuel Miranda? And to shove him up there as somebody who's not doing enough or didn't do enough or made this horrible, horrific mistake, and he ended up apologizing for it. I just think that's so past the point of how we should be appreciating movies. I definitely uh, agree. And this overly PC culture, too, where we always have to apologize for certain things. We don't always look at the the positives. We always kind of look at the negatives or what was left out. And it's hard to tell everybody's story in one story. It's impossible. Yeah, it's impossible. But the film, which we should talk about, because it was almost an impossible goal to say, we're going to remake one of the most beloved movies of all time. when it originally opened on Broadway in 57, it was not the hit that everybody thinks it was. It only ran about a year and a half. It lost the Tony Award for Best Musical to The Music Man. But in 1961, when that film came out, holy moly, it blew up. And West Side Story became this extraordinary contribution to the American musical theater. It made all the participants really rich. I believe Sondheim bought the townhouse that he lived in until the day he died on West 49th Street. Except that it burned down. No, he had a bad fire, but it didn't burn down. It really gave those guys the leg up that they had done a a classic. And the movie in, in its day won 10 Academy Awards, which no film had done since Gone with the Wind. It was a big, big hit. So when Steven Spielberg announced he was going to remake it, a director who has never done a movie musical, I was skeptical. Anybody else? Oh, I was absolutely skeptical. I mean, the only musical I think he ever kind of did was the opening of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom when he did that kind of Busby Berkeley-esque anything goes number. That was back in the 80s, too. It was like, Spielberg doing a musical. Let's see how this goes. And when you think of some of the great directors who Spielberg can be compared to, who crashed and burned when they tried movie musicals, the list includes Sidney Lumet with The Wiz, Richard Attenborough's Chorus Line, and John Huston's Annie are all really poor. So it was always possible Spielberg would fall on his face. To my own personal opinion, I thought it was the best movie he's directed in decades. I think he has produced another classic movie musical. And for my money, and I saw almost every movie that came out this year, it was the most thrilling. It was the movie that I left the theater going, I cannot wait to own that movie so I can watch it as many times as I like. How did you guys feel about it? Bill Stardust. I thought it was very uh, vibrant. I thought the cinematography was terrific. I thought all of the performances were fantastic, particularly the guy who played Riff, whose name was what, Ron? Mike Faced. I mean, this is a standout performance. I mean, he's just brilliant in this thing. It was like 
whoa, I haven't seen somebody land like that on screen since the movie Monster, Charlize Theron. I mean, it was like, my goodness, what a terrific performance. The danger and, that he brought to the oh, world. Yeah, just everything, just such a character, such a vivid characterization. But everybody was great, and I thought they did a terrific job of dramaturging the show and making it work and making all the ironic moments land. I would have to say, if I were going to have to say which I preferred, I would probably say I prefer the original just because it has that vintage 1960s feel. It doesn't feel realistic to me. It feels stylized. All the places feel like sets to me. And not to say that the Spielberg movie was ultra realistic. It was very stylized in many ways. But I love anything from the mid 20th century. And I felt like the musical performances for me, it's just a taste thing. It's like apples and oranges. For me, I liked fuller, slightly fuller voices that I heard in the original. And I liked the look of the original a little bit better, but I was really taken in by the vibrancy and the brilliant cinematography, the brilliant visual treatment that Spielberg and his team did on it. You're right, Ron, it's top notch. It's a great movie. Although you did say the vibrancy of the voices in the original, you're well aware everybody's dubbed in the original. Everybody's dubbed, right. Even Rita Moreno, who was a great musical theater performer, I didn't know that everybody was up. I knew that Marnie Nixon, is it, had dubbed uh, Natalie Wood. Marnie Nixon was for Natalie. Jimmy Bryant sang for Richard Boehmer. Shakiris Bernardo doesn't really sing much, so he sang. But Rita Moreno does some, but the high notes, they're all an actress named Betty Wand. And even Russ Tamblin is dubbed. The actor who sings cool, Tucker Smith, that great number in the garage, Tucker Smith sings for Russ Tamblin in The Jet Song. I guess it's just a question of vocal style. For me, for this music, for Bernstein's music, that vocal style that was going on in the mid-century, I like the way it hits my ear. This is much lighter in the Sondheim. The way they sing is much lighter, much more sort of pop, what we have pop now. So it's just a taste thing. It's not like one is better. Nicole, what do you think? As I said, I co-host a podcast, Remakes, Reboots, Rivals, and me and my co-host, Rolando, we're like yin and yang. I prefer older films, and I'm like a film history nerd, and he, you know, he loved the new Gossip Girl reboot. Like He's just more of the recent guy who likes to have a lot more fun. He's like musicals, and he loved this film, and he's Puerto Rican. And he actually thought that this film was absolutely needed, and he thought that the remake did a lot of a better job than the 1961. Now, Maybe it's because West Side Story was my favorite film when I was nine years old. I'm a film history nerd. My preferred era of films is the 40s to the 70s. You know, that's like kind of, to me, what I'll always go to in terms of a movie night. But I still thought that the new one, if you put kind of the two films side by side, they both do interesting and dynamic things for the story and that they both do something fresh, which, you know, Sondheim himself, like he, I think, rewrote the song I'm Still Here for Barbara Streisand. He rewrote the song for Shirley MacLaine when she sang it in Postcards from the Edge. He kind of loved having like revivals of his own works and kind of revisiting it. You know, he was a big proponent of that. And I think that this new film does bring a lot newness to a side story that, of course, you know, a film from the 60s couldn't do. Yes. And he was also the only creator still alive when they went back to work on this. 
The rest had to deal with the estates of Leonard Bernstein and Arthur Lawrence. But everybody is thrilled with it. I personally know the person who runs the Arthur Lawrence estate, and he can't speak for Arthur because Arthur's dead, and Arthur was also a very difficult person to please. But he feels, just him personally, he couldn't be happier with what they did with it. And then that brings us to to Tony Kushner's contribution to this. I mean, he's one of our great playwrights. I mean, truly. And he really worked tremendously hard to bring depth to all of these characters. I mean, I love the original West Side Story, too, but you could not tell me what that Bernardo did for a living. There was no backstory to any of the characters. Now, people are giving this new film a little criticism because who cares about the backstories? Well, I do. And also, do you know this movie only runs one minute longer than the original? With all that backstory stuff they put in, they didn't take up any time. Now, if it ran 20 more minutes, I'd say, yeah, that was a mistake. But think about that. Think of that achievement. And don't forget that almost all of Arthur Lawrence's dialogue is jettisoned. It's gone. It's replaced by Tony Kushner. And can you do better than Tony Kushner? Yeah, you're right, Ron. You know, I've heard various critics say that I don't care that Tony had been in jail and But his particular backstory, I just thought was wonderful. I loved that he had been in jail for harming someone. Yes. And to me, that moment, it paid off so well. What Kushner and Spielberg set up just paid off so well when he started wailing on Bernardo. And you see that look of pain on Bernardo's face. It's a great, tragic moment. And they set it up with that backstory. And I loved it. And with all of them, that Bernardo was a boxer? Was he a boxer in the original? Oh, they didn't say that. He had, no, he had no profession in the original. We didn't know what he did. He had no background. I love that he was a boxer. I thought that was brilliant. You're absolutely right. The work that Kushner did brought incredible depth to it. My preference was really musical and, you know, like stylistic hairdos and stuff, because I look at that stuff. But the depth that's in this is astonishing. And I remember Arthur Lawrence on a radio interview saying, he didn't like the movie, the original movie. He felt it didn't work. Yeah, he thought yeah, it was too stagey. So. Oh, I don't know. They're dancing. What are they doing dancing on the street? Well, he also didn't like it because he didn't write the screenplay. The screenplay was written by <laughs> Ernest Lehman. <laughs> Ernest um, Lehman. So he, doesn't oh. like, he never liked giving up control in any way. Yeah. Well, I don't blame him. That's Well, that's, yeah. He did yeah. create it. It was his idea all along. Well, no. Robbins came up with it first. The idea of Romeo and Juliet in a modern setting. And then... Lawrence is the one who... Which I had just read today. I didn't realize that it was originally supposed to be like a Jewish... Like the fact that they were all Jewish. That's right. This was going to be a central thing about marrying outside the faith. Jewish groups versus the Irish, I believe. Yeah, it was Jews and Catholics, which was actually a very famous play in the 1920s called Abe's Irish Rose, which to this day, I think, is the second or third longest running play in Broadway history. But that's what the plot was. And when they were working on it in the 50s, I think it was Arthur Lawrence who said, wait a minute, we're musicalizing AB's Irish Rose. We're going to get killed. You know, it's not modern. And they went with the Puerto Ricans. But, you know, none of these guys knew what Puerto Ricans were like. And the characters are just not fleshed out. And of course, in those days, they wouldn't have even thought of going, hey, why don't we bring in somebody who's Puerto Rican and help us with authenticity? They just didn't do that. I think for me, when I saw the new one and I realized how certain characters weren't fleshed out and motivations for them didn't really make sense in the original was what I saw what they did with Chino. Chino's motivation at the end, spoiler alert, you know, murdering Tony. Having his relationship actually spelled out between Bernardo, that he looked up to Bernardo and that he wanted so badly, but, you know, Bernardo looked after him. He didn't want to allow him in the sharks. He wanted a better life for him. Yeah. And what was interesting in this film, too, was that you could see that the sharks were like, all the members of the sharks were taking care of their families. They all had jobs. (laughs) 
that they had to like leave because these jobless jets who are just roaming the street and defiling their street art, like they have to actually get involved. Like they're more so like they have to tend to their families and they're responsible for their families, whereas the jets just kind of seem like a lot of boys who are lost. And I loved that dynamic difference because they all just kind of seem like a lot of lost boys in the original film. But in this film, you see that all the members of the Sharks have to support their family. Like in the original film, Bernardo and Maria's parents are there, but they're not there in this film. And Bernardo's like the sole breadwinner. And that paints more of a picture of what it was actually like for people of Puerto Rican descent or Latino descent in Manhattan in the 1950s. I actually saw a lot of my grandparents in that. So. They went all in on backstories and beefing up the Puerto Ricans, actually to the detriment of the Jets. I would say the only thing in this new film is that the Jets are very generic. They're a bunch of white faces that blur. Where in the original movie, you kind of got a sense of who all those individuals were, even without dialogue, just by how they were cast. This was a very generic group of white guys. I really couldn't tell one from yeah. the other. With the exception, I must say, of anybody's. Anybody's is just fantastic in this production. I mean, it was genius. And it didn't seem just like a nod to the trans community. It was absolutely, I totally believe that this person was who they were. Yeah, no, absolutely. And absolutely needed to be there. It almost made me look back at the 1961. I was like, oh, I wonder if they even like completely understood who this character was when they wrote her. You know, they kind of just portrayed her as like this annoying tomboy. But this new film realized, no, she's more than just that. And seeing that identity in a musical just was beyond, as a member of the LGBT community, I was just so thrilled to see that. Phenomenal. It was phenomenal. But I will say, I do agree with the generic overall of the other boys. Like, Ice was so dynamic in the 1961 film, and I just, I guess I didn't, other than Riff, I didn't feel that relationship with any of the other Jets. But we don't have as much time with the Jets in this new film like we did in the 1961 film. We spent a lot of time with the Jets in the first film. They kind of cut that in half. And we were also made to believe the Puerto Ricans were bad guys. Yeah. We were. Yeah. They, I mean, everybody sided with the Jets. The Jets were cool, and the Puerto Ricans were interlopers. It's not that the creative team took that stance, but they didn't really care about them that much. They cared more about the Jets, and, you know, the Jets do get off as a corrupt game cool. The Puerto Ricans don't. You know, they get America, which, of course, in the original Broadway production, America is just for women. But then the movie version included the men and turned it into the men versus women concept. But I thought every single musical number in this new West Side Story is rethought and restaged and relocated. I mean, just Something's Coming, which is a simple song with Tony talking about his need for what he feels is coming around the bend. You know, he does that like a Broadway musical. He just sings out. Now he's interrelating with the character of Doc that they wrote for Rita Moreno. And it's this pull back and forth, even though she doesn't say a thing. And if you think about it, every number in the movie version of West Side Story, and they're all iconic, the rooftop of West Side Story, with, I mean, the, of America, and where they staged cool and all of that, they're still Broadway show numbers. They didn't move them out of where they take place in a Broadway musical. They just went, all right, we're going to make the movie, and we'll just put everything where it was, except we'll just make the backgrounds more realistic. And this is where Spielberg comes in, and his genius, and his team, his production designer, his costume designer, his cinematographer, and they just... We thought everything, the staging of cool and the introduction of the gun, if we can talk about that, thought that was brilliant. That little scene in the bar when they buy the gun, because don't forget the gun is the gun. I mean, you know, Chekhov's thing about introduce a gun, you better go off. And I just thought it was brilliant to set up the gun so early on. 
even if you know which Yeah, gun. switching the order of the songs to make the stay cool earlier to introduce the gun, and then also making I Feel Pretty happen right after you've witnessed the rumble, which characters die. And then we have this bit of dramatic irony that she's singing I Feel Pretty, whereas before that was earlier in the original musical. I don't know about that. I could be Oh, wrong. yeah, no, they did. They did move it. Yes. I have a little unique perspective on this in this group in that I know I saw this musical. I think our high school did it. I wasn't in it at the time. I was too cool for musicals. I would do the regular plays, but not the musicals. I liked, I was in a rock band. Anyway, so seeing this, I hadn't seen this in so many years. I actually didn't remember, you know, I know it's based on Romeo and Juliet, but I didn't know who would be alive at the end exactly, how it was going to wrap up. So there was actually dramatic tension for me in, in, you know, new, you know, of course I recognize a lot of the songs and things. And then just today, watch the older movie, didn't actually completely get through it because I didn't realize it was quite as long as it was, enough to get about three quarters of it to get a strong sense. To me, this was sort of a Frankenstein that I wasn't looking at this as this is a reboot, a remake of something that I grew up loving. This is a fresh film. And how would audiences today who even don't know anything about the background, how would they experience this? And I could, at least get a sense of that. And I guess my only complaint is that I wish that they had been less reverent to the Leonard Bernstein. I know it was reorchestrated, but you know, I don't need the greatest showman. I don't need it to move that much, but I felt like so many of the other elements, they were very free in modernizing it. And maybe because Sondheim was alive and could contribute that he could change some of the words to fit the situations and they restaged everything. But the fact that some of the orchestrations still had that 1960s, 1950s orchestra, cheesy, I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to be insulting here. You but, just uh... said cheesy. <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I believe in what I've read that most people are flipping out about how brilliant the orchestrations are. They actually are not really the movie's adaptation. They're more taking the original Broadway and turning them more symphonic and it was quite interesting. I did read that Steven Spielberg, of course, went to John Williams, who has scored almost every single movie he's ever made. And John Williams is now in his late 80s. And Williams said no, not because of age or anything like that. He just said, I think you need a guy who's got this in his bones. And he suggested that it be conducted by Dudamel, who is the Los Angeles Philharmonic conductor and who has spent his life studying Bernstein. He just felt you needed a Bernstein aficionado. Did Bernstein literally write out the score or orchestrate it himself in the original? Or That usually doesn't happen in musical theater, but I wondered if it would have been Yeah, most case. composers are not orchestrators. Well, Bernstein was capable of it, but the reason that they don't do it is because there's just not enough time. They're right. revising and doing things. They need other people to orchestrate. That's right. But Bernstein's contribution to this, of course, is massive. You were very right that it's really not a Sondheim musical because the Sondheim sound didn't come to play until Company, or a little earlier when he started with Anyone Can Whistle, which was a, now regarded as a great score, but the show that it contained didn't work and has never worked and closed in one week. Sondheim had this extraordinary streak, starting with West Side Story, which opened on Broadway when he was 27 years old. He started working on it when he was 25. It's unbelievable. We got to stop and pay the bills. It's January. You might have made some New Year's resolutions. Maybe you've already abandoned them by now. Whichever way you challenge yourself this year, there's no better way to do it than with a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ears. Raycon wireless earbuds are the best way to bring audio with you because no matter how much you shake things up, literally, no matter how much you shake your head around, they will not fall out of your ears. Their everyday earbuds look, feel, and sound better than ever. 
They've also got an awareness mode for when you need to listen to your surroundings. So you can take Raycons with you wherever you go. With optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit, these earbuds are so comfortable, they will not budge. I used them for jogging when it was warm enough here for me to want to go outside. I use them for when I go to the store and I want to walk around and I don't want to look like an idiot with giant things over my ears because these are very discreet, cool. Raycons offer eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life. And they're priced right. You get quality audio at half the price of other premium audio brands. It's no wonder Raycons everyday earbuds have over 48,000 five-star reviews. Right now, pretty much pop listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash pretty. That's B-U-Y Raycon, R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash pretty to save 15% on Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash pretty. You know, you don't look so good. Maybe you need to see a doctor. There's probably something you haven't been taking care of. When you need to see a doctor, you don't want to wait days, months, weeks. You want to see a doctor now with ZocDoc. You can search for local doctors who take your insurance. You can read verified patient reviews. You can book an appointment in person or video chat. Never wait on hold with a receptionist again. Whatever kind of specialist or primary care physician, I use this to see an eye doctor. You can find a new dentist. Whatever you need, ZocDoc has you covered. Go to ZocDoc.com slash PMP. Download the ZocDoc app. You sign up for free. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc, and I am one of them. It's my go-to whenever I need to see a doctor. I am looking at the site right now. It is a ridiculously easy interface. You can make sure that this is a well-rated doctor, someone you will want to see. You will not get there and find that they do not take your insurance. You don't even have to leave the app to make the appointment. So it's not just, you know, a search engine. ZocDoc makes healthcare easy. Now is the time to prioritize your health. Go to ZocDoc.com slash PMP. Download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free and book a top-rated doctor. Many are available as soon as today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash PMP. How did he get that job? How did he get the job of being the lyricist for Leonard Bernstein? Stephen Sondheim bumped into Arthur Lawrence at a party. And uh, he said, what's going on? And Lawrence said, oh, you know, we got West Side Story up and running. And Sondheim went, oh, yeah, I've heard about that. Who's doing the lyrics? And Arthur Lawrence always said that expression that I smote my head. He had one of those moments where I, he said out loud, I didn't even think of you. He insulted him. He actually said, yeah, you're a damn fine lyricist. I don't really like your music, but you are a damn fine <laughs> lyricist. And he set up a meeting with Bernstein and that was it. And Bernstein loved to encourage young talent. It wasn't a question of, oh, the kid's an amateur. Didn't matter. He had the goods. I mean, look at the job he did. You know, it's interesting, though, because first and foremost, you know, I went to film school and I, I study film. And although I think that the strongest point of West Side Story is the music and the story, the filmmaking of this film, of Steven Spielberg's film, is, I think, one of the strongest qualities of it. He's got really interesting camera movements from the moment the film begins. He kind of gives a nod to Robert Wise, the co-director of the original film, Absolutely. from starting from above and, and come in. But then he also adds this brilliant theme of gentrification and the fact that, you know, everyone's fighting in this almost like desolate urban landscape. When you look at the way that he designed his shots and the way that he worked with his team to create the world that you're in, you realize actually how much more tragic it is in this film, this whole story. You know, these kids fighting each other. We don't want you here. We don't want you here. Well, guess what? New York doesn't want you here. Nobody wants you here. They don't want any of you here. And you get that more so from Spielberg's West Side Story than you do from the Robert Wise, Jerome Robbins one. No question. I mean, the Robert Wise, Jerome Robbins one is spectacular because you get to see Jerome Robbins choreography. 
cool is so beautiful in the original film because of the way Jerome Robbins choreographed it and he worked with Robert Rice to set it up. But story-wise, we're spending way too much time with the Jets. And you don't realize that until you see the new film. And like, yeah, they established this whole new dynamic and this rift between Riff and Tony is felt way more in the new film because they put the story first. Can I just say, I didn't realize, I enjoyed the Jets dancing at the beginning of the new film, but I didn't realize that they were being Jets by putting their arms like that. In the old film, it's absolutely clear. I mean, it says Jets in giant letters all over the place and they're being Jets. And in the new one, Somehow, whether it's just me being slow or it was not choreographed specifically enough, it was just, okay, they're doing stylized musical dancing, very impressive choreography, but not necessarily this elementary piece of communication. Yeah. Well, I almost feel like the new film realized, you know, we don't have Drum Robbins to choreograph it. So they didn't put choreography front and center like they did in the 1961 film. And I think that that was a smart choice. It was a smart choice. Also, the film technically is co-directed. It says directed by Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins, and they won the Oscar together. The actual fact is that Robbins staged all the musical numbers, and then they were going to start filming them. And Robbins had become such a pain in the ass, he was fired. Jerome Robbins was not there for the filming of West Side Story, not for the actual filming. He rehearsed it all, and then they got rid of him. And then he comes back to the Oscar ceremony a year later and collects his Oscar. Two, actually. They awarded him a special Oscar for just what he did with the dancing. And it is that spectacular. It deserved a special Oscar. And for the new one, it's exactly the same thing with George Lucas, that he was... Okay, that's that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting because when you watch the 1961 film, you realize how good Robert Wise is at adapting a musical to film. He realizes it's a film. You know, he doesn't just have a steady camera and follow everybody. You know, like you brought up the failure of Sidney LeMay's The Wiz, and I think it's because Sidney LeMay just kind of put a wide angle on everything and he just kind of shot things. He didn't turn it into a film, and that's one of the high points of the original West Side Story. But I also think that Spielberg understands that this is a film and the film that he's telling. And I think he uses so many visual cues in it to tell the story. You know, there's so many... I don't know if you guys saw this, but it felt like everyone was kind of like imprisoned in their own world by the way he composed some of his shots. I mean, quite literally the balcony sequence with Tonight. But even in Maria, there were a couple of shots of Tony where there were some reflections over his face. And, you know, you really got that it's like, oh, and in Something's Coming that this character is kind of suffocating here. I don't know. There are some things that he did cinematically. You're that- absolutely right about that. I would love if they do put out, you know, the DVD, you know, if there's director's commentary, because I would love to just hear the breakdown of how they storyboarded the Tonight sequence, because it is shot for shot. It's spectacular. It is. Every shot is stunning. And the musicality all goes with it. Again, that Spielberg never directed a musical. It's astonishing that he did so well. I guess we should also say Robert Wise had never directed a musical when he took on the original as well. You know, sometimes people just get it. And Spielberg had a passion. This movie affected him as a child. It's always been a favorite. And the album, by the way, I guess uh, for historical purposes, we should mention this, that the 1961 album was one of the best-selling albums in history of music. It was the number one album in America for months and months and months. People listened to that movie musical who didn't have any interest in movie musicals. I mean, it just became the thing. Yeah, West Side Story in 1961 was the highest grossing film that year. Number two was The Guns of Navarone. (laughs) Number three was El Cid, a pretty forgotten film for at least mainstream audiences today. But yeah, those were the top three. 
But it's interesting because in 2021, West Side Story is considered a box office failure. Not a lot of people have seen this movie. It's a critical success, but commercially, people are not flocking to the theater to see this. Well, I will mention this. I was able to see the film two weeks before the critics did. I attended the very first public performance of West Side Story in New York City. And I came out of the theater convinced it was going to break records. I thought it was going to be on a par of other great movie musicals that made a fortune. And the timing, of course, is terrible because of COVID. But also, it seems like there's just no interest in it. It feels like the people who are passionate about the movie of West Side Story are a very small breed now because it's 60 years later. And for Spielberg, it was like yesterday because he's a child at heart. And I'm sure he keeps his child, the child in him is so close to who he is all the time that he couldn't even conceive that there are people who don't know who Leonard Bernstein is anymore. People who don't know who Stephen Sondheim is. I mean, we're rushing along so fast and information is so constantly flooding us. I'm also a director and I work with young people every summer. And my constant joke is every summer they get younger and I get older. The space between what they know and what I believe they should know going into the theater, it's an ever widening gap. And every young person who's interested in theater should be seeing this movie. They're not. They went to Spider-Man. Yeah. (laughs) I'm glad Spider-Man is getting people to the theaters. Right. (laughs) But they're seeing Spider-Man for second and third times instead of seeing like uh, Nightmare Alley came out, which was also a great film. And no one is seeing this film. Yeah. But whose idea was it to open Nightmare Alley at Christmas? I mean, it is the (laughs) most grim movie I've sat through in years. And, you know, that's not a Christmas film. This is true, but I remember seeing Wolf on Wall Street on Christmas, and that's not (laughs) Yes. The fact that it was not released on streaming is one of the things that people are writing about. How is the movie industry going to recover? Is this a good thing that more studios are saying, okay, we're going to have things in the theater again exclusively? Or are people, given how bad Omicron is right now, was this just an unreasonable ask? I think it wasn't with Spider-Man. Well, but blockbusters, big effects blockbusters. Comparing this with In the Heights, In the Heights was a much more splashy direction. I didn't enjoy it nearly as much. In fact, my family, some of whom like musical theater much more than I do, we watched it at home. We did not completely get through it. It wore us down. (laughs) We will go back to it sometime. But when you're talking about Spielberg being a novice about that, apparently John Chu, I guess, was all, I don't know if he had done musicals before, but he certainly was known for a lot of non-musical films before he did In the Heights as director. But the brilliance of Spielberg's directing in this is that he didn't shoot it for the most part like a musical. Obviously, if they're out in the street dancing and singing America or the scene in the gym, actually pretty similar in many ways to the scene, to the way it was originally shot. I guess more overhead shots and fancier camera work. Maybe a drone was involved. But in any case, what Nicole was talking about of feeling confined, you know, the fact that he's Tony is singing this song while like shelving things in the store. It's almost like, how would we film this if he was just talking to Rita Moreno's character? Let's do that. Yeah, I agree. I think it may be important to give a shout out to Justin Peck, the choreographer. I think a lot of critics have observed on a lot of people have said that choreography in this is terrific. And I think it's kind of organic. I feel like it's incredible spectacle like when that camera opens up on the gymnasium and they're all dancing it's phenomenal but i feel like the dancing is kind of a heightened version of what they might have been doing you know like i felt it was organic to the characters and particularly in that number cool what he did with the movement 
where they're trying to get that gun. Oh, it's so dramatic. I've never seen anything like that in any kind of dance number or any kind of stage number. It was just phenomenal. And don't forget, it's a movie. So you can do the close-ups of the gun. You can get in there with the camera. I mean, I guess when we were saying how skeptical we were that Steven Spielberg wanted to do a musical, you know, you should never really underestimate someone of his skill. I mean, he is a brilliant filmmaker, you know, who has been working consistently since he was 22. And he's learned so much. And he has these collaborators, Janusz Kaminski, who did the photography. They've done so many movies together. Their communication must be extraordinary. You know, I would love to have been on the set just to overhear the way they would talk about the next setup, you know, and also he prepares, you know, the man storyboards everything within an inch of its life. I'd be very curious to know how storyboarded the original West Side Story was. Uh, Probably it was very because Robbins worked those dances out so, so well. I think the hope was in hyping Spielberg's involvement was to say, like Spielberg's sci-fi work, like Spider-Man, this is something that is worth seeing on the big screen so you can get all the massive choreography and you can get all the overhead shots and you can get everything and really experience it the way it's supposed to be. I just feel like we haven't had enough musicals make it big in the last couple decades that people are convinced that it's the same level of showmanship that you have to get to a theater. Something about the new Star Wars movie. If you don't see that on the big screen, you're a fool. But if something that is equally the greatest showman, I don't know. It seems like you can get at least the popular perception. I feel personally that I don't even remember at this point if I saw that in the theater or not, but probably not. You could get a good percentage, a larger percentage of the effect seeing it in any setting because it is about getting the music in your head and things like that, as opposed to just feasting your eyes on the visual spectacle. If that is all there is, then you've got to see it in the But movie musicals have kind of been an endangered species for a very long time. You know, Chicago was a huge hit, but that was in the year 2000. But it took 25 years to make the movie. It opened on Broadway in 1975. And I'm wondering about, you mentioned John Chu, you know, his next big project is the movie of Wicked. And I'm sure they are quaking in their boots. Wicked is a billion dollar, billion dollar franchise, you know. But nobody went to the movie of Cats, and that's another billion-dollar franchise. But, of course, they produced a truly terrible movie. So I think John Chu will make a better movie than Tom Hooper did of Cats. But they're looking at budgets over at Universal, and they're going, how much do we put into this? I mean, how do we – and that's going to be a very expensive movie to make because unlike the Broadway version – this witch is going to fly. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I didn't actually see Cats. Did they modernize? I know about the visual effects and things, but did they also modernize the music, the orchestration to try to make it of the moment in a way that was to its detriment? They changed a little bit of the plot. They tried to update it. So it's by the same filmmaker who did the Les Mis version. And I think oh, okay. that the Les Mis film to me didn't quite work because again, he felt too confined to making it as much of a Broadway musical on film instead of just a film like he had everyone doing it live which is great and ambitious but anyway i'll, I'll put that to the side and i hope i don't uh, upset any Les Mis fans but you know it's interesting because with west side story being a box office failure today it speaks to well one musicals don't have the audience that they do at least not to get them to the theater musicals are an endangered species we all at the beginning of this podcast you know said we had doubts about spielberg doing a musical you know so i think there's that i think people aren't really convinced that one spielberg was the person to handle it but two whether or not he did a good job or was this even needed why are we remaking west side story but the reviews were sensational yes they were well now but no but i mean you, that should have been enough that should have been enough it to, should have been to make people go see it 
Absolutely. But, you know, it's interesting because when we cover a remake or a reboot on my podcast, we always ask the question, you know, well, who is this for? And I do ask, who is West Side Story for this new film? And, you know, the real answer is it's supposed to be for everybody. But in this day and age, that's just not true. There are limited audiences for certain things unless it's Marvel. And it's interesting because you shared this article down with West Side Story from Slate where they wrote in it, Spielberg's unnecessary remake flopped because it wasn't actually for anyone. And I was just wondering, like, do you guys agree with that, that this wasn't really for anyone? Does it have to be for a specific group of people or can this be like for everyone? And is that enough these days? Well, that's, it's an interesting marketing. I mean, it's really a marketing question, right? Like, does mm. a movie have to have a target audience? I don't know the answer to that. Studios will tell you 14-year-old boys. That is a target audience. <laughs> that's true, yeah. That's who they make movies for. The target audience for musicals seems to be young women. Well, Wicked will be a test of that. But the thing is, because of the box office, people now feel like its Oscar chances are dead. I don't think that's true. Uh, it's going to get a lot of nominations, and it's going to become available to every member of the Academy, 8,000 people, to watch on their big screen TVs. They're going to have digital downloads. They're going to watch it. And don't forget... You know, if you ask, who is this movie made for? Well, people who remember the original. And the Academy still has many older members, many, many older, who are going to be, I think, charmed by it. I really do. And, you know, currently, I just looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes. You know, it's 93% with critics and 94% with the audience. I mean, it's still doing great in terms of that, except for the fact that because of COVID and because of other circumstances, people just are not seeing it. Yeah. Before the code ended, you know, we had the production code in this country, uh, the Hayes Code, also known as the production code, which limited what you could portray on film, right, from 1934 to 1967. And after that, they came up with the rating system. But before that, all films had the same rating from the 30s into the late 60s, because all films were meant supposed to be for everyone, right? And essentially, all films were supposed to also be family films. And we definitely got past that, especially in the cinema of the 70s, where it's like, no, this is for mature audiences and this one's. So we got to this point in film where we started putting genres and stuff into brackets. Okay, this is for these people and this is for that. To the point where it's almost kind of, in my opinion, a little carried away these days. And that's why genres like musicals and westerns have kind of faded Nobody's watching them as much as they used to because they're labeled as your parents' things or just passe and just not cool anymore. Bill and I will tell you growing up, I mean, Bill, there was a Western on television, on the networks, on almost every channel, every night of the week when we were growing up. <laughs> yeah, Gunsmoke and Rawhide. It and was that popular. All those shows, yeah. Every night of the week, there was a Western. I'll have to get a Westerns episode on here eventually. Oh, and I would love to be a part of that because I love Westerns. But, you know, it's amazing that like Power of the Dog and West Side Story last night won the Golden Globes, right? I mean, you know. Yeah, you're right. Two genres that are dead. Two genres that are, you know, so <laughs> American. Honestly, like yeah. you can't get more American than a musical or a Western. And they won it. And it's like, so for me, I'm like, I'm so hopeful that they're back. But at the same time, West Side Story is a flop. And Power of the Dog, they didn't even bother <laughs> releasing it as much as they did other films and theaters. It got released because people are like, eh, people are not going to go see a Western. They'll wait for it to win the Best Director Oscar and then, re and then release it. And then it they'll the see it. Yeah. yeah. Before the pandemic, up to the pandemic, we've been in a golden age of stage musicals, I think it's fair to say. Starting with a chorus line. I don't know. I'm sure there are people who know. And going to Hamilton, let's say. I've heard it said, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard it said that 
Broadway makes more money than any entertainment thing. Oh, yes. Oh, it puts football or anything like that to shame. The revenue it brings into the New York City. My point is that you would think that that would transfer to the movies, you know, but somehow it doesn't. Different animals. On a stage, you're already the conceit that the fourth wall, you know, we're the fourth wall. And, but in a movie, why do people start singing to each other? In the theater, the great line is people sing to each other when mere words are no longer enough, which is you buy it. You buy into it. Look, when I was growing up, my favorite thing to watch was a sitcom. I can't watch sitcoms on television anymore. When that laughter starts, now I can watch an old episode of Friends or Frasier, and it doesn't bother me. But a new show, I can't get into it. New shows need to be the one camera, like The Office or 30 Rock. I can't take the canned laughter or the overly enthusiastic studio audience, which is also spiked and pumped up and beefed up. It's just like it's like chalk on a blackboard. Uh, genres, things change over time. But I just thought West Side Story was this glorious return. I was also a fan of In the Heights. I thought, what was the thing your family didn't like about it, Mark? Was it just too sweet? I think it was just exhausting. I would agree that the editing for In the Heights was like really fast. It was very music video-y. And yeah, exactly. Like a two and a half hour, three hour music video. Like that's hard. You should just take that in small bites. That's fine. But that's not the way it's yeah, intended. I thought it was ambitious. A movie musical is always going to be sort of a Frankenstein, as you were just saying, Ron. But I think having old source material attached to modern, rougher, will make the violence more realistic. Like, there are ideological things at the core of this. Whether young people today, okay, even though this is about teenagers, I don't know, do you feel like teenagers? I should have asked my daughter directly about this. She's 18 now, but she's in the borderline. We just saw this together. The idea of the love at first sight, the way that that happens in both films right now, like if you really take that, this is not a stagey thing. This is not, you know, something that we're putting forth a romantic trope to be considered, but considering it actually as a realistic thing, if you saw it in a regular non-musical show and people were just focused on each other, like guys might do that. It ends up being sort of predatory and it's a fantasy that the woman is going to respond in exactly the same way that I think maybe a lot of men, at least I feel like I've had the fantasy at some point of, I don't want to go through the trouble of getting to know someone. I just want to lock eyes with someone and like, man, we're just destined to be together. And maybe I've even had that attitude and multiple times going into public places as a younger Romeo, the idea that a woman would actually respond that way and that it ends up being, I guess, true love and not merely two people that are sharing a weird delusion that they know each other when they don't. You know, the fact that we're supposed to buy this as the emotional core of this movie, that seems a very classical idea that I don't know that modern audiences will buy. Didn't 20 years ago, everybody buy into Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes falling in love in, in Romeo and Juliet? I think they bought it. Yeah, it's interesting too, because that's because of the execution, because Baz Luhrmann's execution was so enthralling, you know? And I, for me, at least, if you give Spielberg's execution of West Side Story a try, then you might be more down with it than you would be before watching it. For me, I think this movie was a hit. I think that also the complaints of the use of the Spanish language, where it doesn't get subtitles, there was a lot of controversy there. And I, I spoke with a friend of mine and was like, well, the predominant language in this country is English, so, you know, there should be subtitles. But I actually think it gets away from the authenticity, although I can understand that argument. Yeah, but don't you think directorially that was also to make us feel like we don't understand them? It's part of that barrier. It made us the Jets, in a sense, you know, we're outside that experience. The New York that they're depicting was not a New York of today. I mean, where you go into the subway and the signs are in Spanish on the, the ads in Spanish on the subway. You know, there's a lot of Spanish billboards. There's, you know, there, there was none of that then. Yeah. It did strike me as a little artificial, the fact that the characters would say to each other, 
hey, speak English. We got to practice English because we got to fit in. But obviously that was being done as a way to make like, we're going to have someone translate in Spanish, but we want the yeah. English people in the audience to be able to follow. And so we're going to force some of it to be in English. Yeah, if it was a super important plot point, they would switch to English. It was a little but ham-handed. The but way if they were just done. fighting or something in general, we got the sense of what they were fighting about. Even though, you know, back in the day growing up a lot, there's a lot of people in my generation that don't speak the language of their household because it really was like, no, you have to speak English. You're in America. You have to speak English. So even at homes, you know, that actually, at least my mirror reflection that I saw, it spoke true to me. The only thing that had bothered me were there are some really great lines that people who don't speak the language didn't get. Like there's this moment in the kitchen with Bernardo and Anita and, and she says something where it's like, oh, because I'm a dark-skinned Puerto Rican, I'm not part of your family. And people who don't speak the language missed that moment. Anybody who, was, who would come across any complaints about representation, they would have really enjoyed that moment because that was something that's so true within the Latino community. People who are Black but identify as Latino, just, just so much conflict within cultures. It's interesting because the film like kind of hints at so many little things that it doesn't quite expand on, but at least it gives you enough recognition. Like it sees it, you know, and it puts it there and it's enough for you to spark a conversation, at least in your head, you know, but it doesn't go all the way with all these little things that it puts in the films. Let's kind of go around for any final thoughts. Ron, start us off. Please go see West Side Story. Make up your own mind. Even if you think you're not going to like it, give it a try. I think it will sweep you up. I think it will draw you in. They tell a great story, which is all we ever really want when we go to the movies is to go to another place. Uh, take me there. I'll tell you just a funny little thing about myself. When I go to the theater now, I've taken to not opening up the program anymore. I don't want to know anything about it. I don't know how many characters there are. I don't want to know where it's set. Tell me as soon as the curtain rises, I'll start to figure it out. And I tell my friends when they sit down next to me, I said, just don't open your program. Go, Why? I want to know. I said, just, 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 just go for the, take the journey, take the trip. So the same thing here. And most people know West Side Story, but just take the trip, take the journey, take it on faith. And you know what? What the hell? I'll give you a money back guarantee. For Broadway, for musical theater, it's, it's common practice for shows to get revived, for revivals of shows. Like Chicago is one of the longest running revivals. And that was done completely differently from the original Bob Fosse production. It was more minimal. And they were like, how can we make this different? And a lot of times when you revive shows on Broadway, you were thinking, well, how can we update it? How can we make it different? You don't always want to put the same thing back on the stage. You want to tackle it a little differently. And we don't think of film remakes like that. We actually think of films as kind of pure and should be untouched. And I think that we should kind of look at film remakes kind of like how Broadway looks at reviving their own shows, where it's like, well, what kind of new life can we breathe into this? How can we update it? How can we treat it and look at it a little differently? And so I think Steven Spielberg did a really nice revival of West Side Story for 2021. The 1961 West Side Story was perfect for 1961. But I think that for 2021, this West Side Story gave us something that we kind of we didn't realize that we needed. So that's what I want to say. <laughs> Bill, take us home. Well, I think it's just a terrific movie. And it stands up in its own right, whether it's a musical or as a musical or as a film. There are just so many wonderful details. One of my favorite thing that put me in the context of the racial and the gentrification of the neighborhood right away was when the camera pans up onto the Lincoln Center, coming soon, Lincoln Center, and there's a big picture of Lincoln Center. And then later on, they say, Kushner has the line, that that's not for us, that's for white people. And then just little set pieces like the sign in the 
background when they were doing witty, there's a sign in gimbals that says, witty dresses for you, you know. Just little touches everywhere. Just the attention to detail in the movie is just astonishing. And once again, I just I have to return to the performances. The performances are just real top-notch musical theater performances. And yet they also work as pop. They work as just the most current pop music singing and dancing that you could possibly imagine. It's just, it's wonderful. You got to see it. I firmly believe Ariana DeBose will win Best Supporting Actress, and it'll be the first time that two actresses have won the Academy Award for playing the same part. For the same role. That'd be awesome. Well, thank you so much to all three of you for uh, gushing enthusiastically about this film. I thought there would be a little more uh, skepticism about some elements that I had to just manufacture out of my own bosom to uh, (laughs) some negativity here. But yeah, not enough people have seen this. It'll still be in theaters, hopefully, when people hear this. If any of you have time to stick around for another few minutes after we do the cutoff for the public, I record a little more for the supporters, the select. But for the general populace, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all. Thank you. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. You can also now get all the bonus content directly through Apple Podcasts by signing up for a paid subscription there, which gets you ad-free episodes and extra talking not only for Pretty Much Pop, but also for my other podcasts, Nakedly Examined Music and Philosophy versus Improv. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.